the main key thing I think for anyone who is thinking about starting their business is they just, you know, for me, it was about loving it so much. It's all I wanted to do. I mean, it was just very much about the passion for design and the joy of uh, working with others. When I first started out, I was teaching as well. So I worked with a lot of students and those students then came to work with me on my projects. So it was always very collaborative. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Jeannie Gang. Jeannie is a founding principal and partner of Studio Gang. Her approach to design has distinguished her as one of the leading architects of her generation, and she's on the cutting edge of design strategies to improve ecological biodiversity in cities. Some of her notable works include the Aqua Tower in Chicago, Q Residences in Amsterdam, the Guggenheim Foundation headquarters in New York, and the Taipei Pop Music Center in Taipei, just to name a few. Jeannie is also a professor in practice at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. She's the author of three books on architecture and a monograph of the studio's work, Studio Gang, Architecture, which was published in June 2020. Jeannie, welcome to the podcast. I'm an unabashed admirer, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Now, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Belvedere, Illinois. Was your penchant for creativity and design apparent as a child? And how did your interest in architecture evolve? Oh, well, it really did start pretty early. I was very interested in building things like tree houses. And, uh, you know, I would be making forts out of snow, being from a cold climate. And I was just always interested in making things like that, but very um, much into the arts and also, you know, drawing and creating but also really a penchant for science and math. So that's the kind of the combination that has to come together for architecture. And did you meet any architects early on? I didn't really because I was from a small town, but I did, we had a Frank Lloyd Wright building in my town. And then of course, being close to the city of Chicago was always really one of my favorite things to do is come and see you know all the buildings in a city like that. So all the museums and tall buildings were really, one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid. Yeah. So how would you describe your approach to design and architecture? How much is inspiration? How much is perspiration? Where, where does it come from? Well, the thing maybe to start with is just that architecture is a very unique kind of field because it's both, it's an art, uh, like I said, so there's this artistic part of it, but it's very impossible to do on your own. It really takes so many players coming together to make a building. And, you know, in the old days, like you had the master builder, you know, who was the architect, the developer, and the, and the contractor all in one. And really architecture education has changed a lot. And, you know, starting the early 19th century, it became the Ecole de Beaux-Arts, which was really much more of a apprenticeship type education. There's still a lot of different ways that people study, but now the profession is really splintered into more specific areas of expertise. The architect still has to 
you know, be able to talk to all these different kinds of people, the, the people that make things, finance people, developers, the marketing people. I feel sometimes like a journalist, you know, where you're, you come in and you just want to learn everything there is to learn about how people that are going to be in this building behave like at the American Museum of Natural History, for example, just going behind the scenes and seeing what scientists do every day. And so it's always learning about these different things. And so you need to synthesize a lot of information. And so some of it is very statistic and data oriented. And then there's these moments of creativity that where things start to make sense and fall into place spatially and three-dimensionally. And so it's, it's, I love the field for that reason. It's just every single day is a different experience and you're always learning about what other people do so that you can make space for them to do it. Yeah, you sure do that. And, you know, you built this globally renowned architecture firm, Studio Gang. And I believe building a business is one of the most valuable things anyone can do. So I'd like you to talk about what it took to create Studio Gang. I know you've got a unique culture. So how do you cultivate the unique culture of the firm? How do you maintain it? And you've done this already, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the teamwork, how you work as a team to get assignments and bring them to fruition. So that's a big question, but you've built the business and culture is a key part of it. Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's so true. To start out with, you know, I started out as a one-person show. Literally, I w- it was myself and my laptop. And I had a small project to do, which was a little interior renovation for a friend of mine. And really, that's where I started it. And, and everything in the business, starting out small business, was like setting up, you know, the computers and the network and do the billing and all these little things that you learn that really helped me to understand those things as we grew. But the main key thing, I think, for anyone who is thinking about starting their business is they just, you know, for me, it was about loving it so much. It's all I wanted to do. I mean, it was just very much about the passion for design and the joy of uh, working with others. When I first started out, I was teaching as well. So I worked with a lot of students and those students then came to work with me on my projects. So it was always very collaborative. I think what I did differently, though, was there was kind of a mold that I saw for what architects did in their businesses, which I kind of broke out of, which was to really make the things that I was interested in come through this medium. So, you know, a lot of the things that you're designing come from the client and and what they need, and you try to bring your innovation to that. But there was also other things that I was passionate about. So I was bringing that to the work as well and marrying those, of course, together. So it's always been a co-creation atmosphere in my office. And we cultivate that. And I think it makes it more enjoyable for the people that work there and creating this kind of safe space for creativity to happen. And then, you know, you start to attract other people that think the same way, you know, so it's contagious. How big is the firm now? So now we're about 130 people, um, which is, it's not the biggest architecture firm, but it is categorized as a large firm. You know, most firms stay one or two people, or they might go to 10 or 15 people. But yeah, I made the decision to grow it to a size where I would be able to handle larger projects and a variety of projects simultaneously. 
Well, so the question I have then for you is one of the things I learned that when you're building a business, size can help you, right? But it can also be the enemy of excellence. So you've kept the excellence. So describe, you, you were starting to say, attracting people to think like you. So what's the culture? You know, the, the safe space where people create, how do you work together? And, and what's, what is the culture of Studio Gang? Oh, and yeah. how do you make it excellent while still big? Yeah, it's a great question. So it, it's really about teams, building teams that are, they're all like small, little, excellent teams that have designers and technical people on them. And, and when we, whenever we start a project, we get that team together, we do research. And again, the research might be because we haven't done that type of project before, but we build, it's very like intellectual in the beginning, like you build a bibliography of books and articles to read and research that's been done. And we go off in different directions for this very creative sponge mode, I guess I would call it. And then we come back together and we share our findings and then things start to become relevant. You know, like it might be that the client is trying to do something with a theater. I was thinking of the writer's theater, for example, where the creative director really wanted the most intimate space, you know, possible in a theater. So some of the research was about that and acoustics and, and the place the ecology, all these things that might be seem tangential, they, they start to come together and then the team is there when that spark happens. And so when everybody's on the same page and sharing like that, that's the culture that I want to cultivate, not the culture, the opposite of that is where people kind of hoard information and try to create a power hierarchy. So the key to it is in growing larger is to try to continue to have that safe, collaborative team environment where you're not trying to outdo each other, you're trying to build, keep the project as a focus at the center. It's interesting because, you know, banking is a very different business, but the culture we tried to emphasize when I was running Goldman Sachs and all along at Goldman Sachs was teamwork. And you could be some bankers that would be stars at other firms but if they came to our firm, it would just sort of be rejected, sort of like an organ transplant that didn't work because they didn't want to be part of a team. But I guess part of that is you attract the right people, but part of it is how you perpetuate it. And you clearly work to do that. Yeah, that's so true. Like, like you mentioned, you know, it's so strong in our firm that sometimes I say, like, who made this, you know, really cool sketch here? And, you know, the answer is we all made it or, you know, it's like to the extreme. It's so cool, but it really does make it, you know, it puts the project at center, like for your work too. That's the goal. And sure, there are going to be people that excel and that will become apparent, but usually the really good team players are the ones that they're supporting other young people in the office. They're mentoring as well as being creative themselves. So I'm, you know, I don't have a great sense of design. So what's attracted me to your architecture is the way you use it to connect people with the natural world. And you've emphasized bird safe building techniques and works like the Aqua Tower in Chicago. You've developed an experimental prairie ecosystem on the rooftop of your Chicago office. You're on the cutting edge here. So I want you to talk a bit about how you see Talk about what you've done, but how you see your work evolving on the issue of sustainability 
you've been leading here. So yeah. how to where you've got and what's the next evolution? Oh, it's so exciting for me because that's one of the interests I bring is just this love of nature, but also the complexity of ecology. So the rooftop garden you mentioned, that is really a realization that I had that, you know, we have all of our land in the city. A lot of it is, we have parks, but a lot of it is paved over and there's just not enough room because circulation needs to have habitat there. So green roofs have been around for a while, but having biodiverse green roofs that are building biodiversity up on a different level in the city. If you could imagine those, I think my vision in dream is that they would be connected like corridors in the sky that could support animals, insects, plants through the middle of cities. We're losing so much biodiversity so quickly with loss of habitat. So that's one thing. And so integrating green into the buildings, making them part of nature. We're not the only species that deal with architecture. So I think that's like future coming, like many more species to see how much we can have that integration and in the cities, like as well as a place like Lincoln Park Zoo Nature Boardwalk, where we took more of like a, a 19th century version of nature in the city, which was more picturesque and made it actually functioning. Like it's stormwater infrastructure, it's habitat. And people love this in the city. So it's, it's really great, especially thinking about now with a pandemic that we've had, you know, how important it is to get outside, how important it is to be connected to places like that that are close by. I think the big hurdle that we need to do as an industry, it has been reducing energy all this time, but it's shifting to just this carbon calculation because this is just we have made good gains on reducing energy, but the carbon is still enormous that is produced in doing buildings. So the frontier is really, it's kind of like something we already knew how to do in the past, make buildings out of wood, <laughs> but we need to do it now and move it forward in the future so that uh, we can work with products that are manufactured that are easier to build and transport. And also think about materials that can actually sequester carbon besides trees, there could be materials that can start to be integrated. So buildings are actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's like the frontier that I'm really interested in pursuing. And it's, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of work to be done. And of course, regulations will help us to move that along. Because if we don't have regulations or targets, it's just, it ends up not happening. <laughs> so. yeah, you and I have talked about this a lot, because you know, I focused in China, but just if you look all around the world and you look at carbon emissions and look at all buildings, like 50% of emissions, not just office buildings and residential, but industrial buildings and so on. It's a big source of emissions. And we've just seen time and time again, if you don't have the proper building codes and regulations and so on, you're going to get buildings that are inefficient and are, are worsening our problem. It's so true. I mean, you see when those targets are put into place as policy in cities mainly, they can be met. But if they're not required, um, there's just not the right incentives to meet it. But but going after carbon is interesting because it will fundamentally, we have one project that we are working on where there's very tough guidelines in the city of Paris for the University of Chicago project, the Paris Center. And we are really you know, looking at that calculation for everything down to the connection details 
you know, how they're made and how much steel is in them and so on. It really forces you to address it. And we are, but that, that is probably our best performing building that we will have made is that building right there. And it's in Paris. Well, that is so important because what we need are models. You mm. need pioneers to create models and show that it can be done. And that's, I think, a lot of the work going forward is going to be very important here. I want to, before leaving this topic generally, you know, I got to know you through my wife, Wendy, Elon Mark, and birding and your love for nature and so on. And so you clearly bring that to your work. So you brought all of that and biodiversity to your work. Before moving on, let me ask you other hobbies you have that when you relax, because you're working hard, but what do you like to do in your spare time? You know, it's funny because architecture is just like, it's so all encompassing for me. People always talk about work-life balance, but for me, it's like, you know, the natural world and design and architecture. That's like my main two things that I love to do. So I like to, you know, of course, travel to cities and see what's been done. And, um, I, but I equally like going to places where I can learn from natural ways of building and, and how nature works as a system. And those are two things that, you know, I use in my work all the time, but it's really my hobbies as well. It's really studying, being a very observant study of nature has really informed my work. I think you can see the patterns in the work. You can see the, the frit that we put on the windows that also protects birds from flying into class, but you can also see aesthetically there's something there that is inspired by natural forms, natural patterns and systems. And I think it goes all the way into thinking about how things relate to each other because, you know, in nature, everything is connected. And so when we think about buildings, I also like to think about how they, not just the site that it's sitting on, but how it connects into the larger context. Well, you're very, very fortunate because for you, your avocation and vocation come together. And so you really enjoy your, what you're doing. So let's talk about Chicago. So you're a global figure in the architecture world. But here in Chicago, we proudly claim you as our own. Is there something about this city which has made you devote so much of your work to it? What I love about it is you, you've done so much in Chicago, but you also think globally. So you're doing things from Chicago, you're doing it all over the world. But what is it about Chicago that appeals to you? Well, you know, Hank, it's really that it's my hometown. I understand it so well and its relationship to the way that it grew up as a metropolis. I love the book Nature's Metropolis, by the way, which really does a good job of explaining those relationships between the natural resources, the industry, and then the resulting city that comes out of it. So, but what I've, you know, because I do think globally as well, what I've tried to do with my practice is create, as I've grown, create new practices that are local, that are in the place in the city that I am located in. So we're in Paris, New York, San Francisco, and Chicago. And each office in designing this, you know, business, it's like each office is extremely local so they can work on local issues of equity or environment, but then we can also collaborate. We're, we're natives in terms of collaborating digitally um, and we can bring resources to different projects as well. And then, you know, a couple times a year, we all get together and so that we can continue our friendships and 
collaborations. But I think that that approach makes it real. You know, I don't feel like a global entity that doesn't know about the places where I'm working, you know, and luckily I, I all four of those cities are cities I love. And we do have, you know, people from there in each of those offices. So it's kind of a different way. It's, I'm not trying to blanket the globe with my work. If opportunities come along, yes, but really it's kind of this more local global thing at the same time. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a core strength because design obviously transcends culture. You know, it brings people together. And so you've got your core values and your culture, and then you're bringing that. And the fact that you're world-class helps you because what you learn in one place can move to another, but you've got to understand the local regulations and rules. So that's a, so you've, you're running a global firm with a strong culture. Which brings me to my last question, which is two-part question, because you spend a lot of time with young people, okay, and with, with aspiring architects. And so the reason I'm going to break it into two parts is I see when I talk to, to young people that want to be architects, it's an area where there's a lot of people that want to go into it, and the compensation level can be pretty low, and technology is hollowing it out, right? So the most talented people tend to do well, but otherwise a lot of what used to be done, you know, is done on a computer. And so just thinking about that for young people. And so that's one part of the question. What do you say to someone who's, who thinks they might want architecture? And then the second question is just specifically for you, following up on your last one. When you, for studio gang, are hiring someone, and it's someone that you haven't worked with before, okay, and you're interviewing them, what is it that you look for for someone to join Studio Gang? Well, the first part of the question is really, you're right that the technology is reducing, like overall, there's still, you know, lots of buildings that need to be done or renovated, right there. So there's, it's a pretty large group, but overall, these technologies are reducing the number of people needed overall. But what that's done in architecture is just created so much more creativity about designing your own career. I mean, you know, a lot of architects, it's a way of thinking. It's this way of thinking that is so valuable. And I think businesses have even studied design schools, you know, to see how this creativity works. But I've seen architecture students leave and go into everything from you know, game design, like spaces, the virtual spaces, designing those to urban design, which is really a growing field because our urban centers are, are still expanding. And so bringing all those systems together, I mean, there's so many different ways it can go. There's many different paths. I guess in that sense, my trajectory is in a way it's more traditional in that, you know, we design cities and buildings. <laughs> you know, in this, like I said, more collaborative way, but there are many different careers that benefit from this kind of um, architectural education, which is very rigorous. Yeah, I would add that. And what you've said, I've always said, outstanding professionals, and you can see it when they're very young, define their job expansively, right? And you went up the traditional way, but you defined it very expansively in terms of what architecture was and really understanding everything the client wants and getting into the environment and so on. I visited, when I visited Stanford last, they have a school of design, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they're looking at creativity to solve all kinds of problems. And so what you're saying is young people, if you're, if you're interested in design and creativity, there's a way of thinking and there's all sorts of things you can do with that. And so right. I mean, there's so much, uh, so many cool things to do with data and, and mapping and the architecture. There's so many different paths and I've seen people go into so many different ways, but yes, it's the thinking and architecture of these design arts, like industrial design, let's say interior design landscape, where architecture is probably the most rigorous one. It's the longest amount of study, but I think it would serve young people very well in many, many different fields that they would be interested in. Yeah, a real thought process. And as you yeah. said, you need to understand math and science and in addition to design. So now you're interviewing someone. Uh, what is it for your culture? What is it you're looking for? Because the key for so many is getting the right people. It's a great question. And I do not feel like I am qualified to know like that person is good at everything. So that's why when we interview people, I always have other people in my firm with me, you know, from different parts, you know, someone who just started that I really, you know, believe in that that's a very good judge of character and someone who's advanced, someone who's more of a designer and management type. So we, we try to have multiple people there because we're looking for different things, you know, and for me, I'm looking at the way that they think and that they express themselves in their drawings that they might have just finished from school and how accomplished those are, how good, but that's not the only important thing. And, you know, I'm listening to how they articulate, but other people are looking for other things. So that's how we address it. And it has worked. It's worked. It's like, there's usually a consensus about the top candidates for sure. When we start talking about the qualities that we were looking for. So yeah, it's it's a. I think that also helps build the teamwork too, because we also multiple people saw that person and and were interested in in them, and so it's it's a little bit of a group decision. Yeah, and it's it, and it's it's all about culture, and you uh, reduce the risk that you will make a mistake, and you re- reduce the risk that the new hire will come into a situation where he or she can't right. succeed. So I feel more comfortable too when they arrive. They they met more people. Now I've got one last question to talk about because it's so big today. You've been an outspoken leader in fighting discrimination and prejudice in the architecture world. Talk about your efforts here and your experience as an architect and how this has shaped your views on some of today's social justice issues. You know, it's, I think the issue is really about, you know, the positive benefit you get from different points of view and people from different backgrounds in a design environment is a plus for the business. But there's issues about the pipeline of, you know, architects coming through, they're ready to be, you know, to to enter the practice. There's like a lot, it's very uneven in terms of who studies architecture, because it used to be such a field that was for the privileged, you know, few. So part of what we're trying to do is, you know, get more people interested in, in architecture and urban design and all the other things that we talked about that can come out of it. I think it's historically maybe not, it's not like something, if you come from a family that maybe is not already privileged, it doesn't look like the most attractive field in terms of the salaries that you could make coming out versus a, you know, 
going into finance or something or going into medical profession. So it's, but it's so rewarding. So, so part of it is working on that pipeline part and then making sure that the internal environment is safe for people to feel appreciated. And that takes work as an organization to, I don't want to see this talent that is out there wasted. There, there are so many amazing people that could be contributing to our built environment and making it the environment itself more equitable. So I feel I'm mostly driven by the fact that I feel like we're missing something and I, I want to open that up and bring people in. And I think we'll all benefit from that. For sure. And Jeannie, this has been really fun and enlightening and keep pushing the boundaries in design, social justice and sustainability. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.